You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hayfay, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. As I suspected might happen, today's episode grew unwieldy almost immediately. I tried to give these little biographical introductions to our main players, just a sketch really, but that grew into a whole extra episode that had even less to do with pirates than what we've got here today. There were also some explanations of positions within Roman civic life that aren't really important, but again would help us to understand our characters. However, again, that would have made today's episode way too big. So instead, we're just going to jump in, in the year 71 BCE. This is episode 299, 2, Pompey and the Pirates. 71 BCE was the last year of the Third Servile War. That's the war in which a bunch of enslaved gladiators, led by a man named Spartacus, rebelled against their masters. Slaves from every corner of Italy rallied to the cause, and pretty soon their army was big enough and powerful enough to threaten the stability of Rome. Rome sent a few armies against this uprising, but lost a few major battles against them. That made Rome look bad, but even worse, it made the consuls that led those Roman forces look ineffectual. It was embarrassing, and nobody else, no other consul or proconsul, wanted to put their honor on the line to go fight some slaves. You know, if you lose, you look really bad, and if you win, 
you still don't look that great. But one man was willing to put that honor on the line. Marcus Licinius Crassus. Crassus was the richest man in Rome. He was famous for having said that if you can't afford to maintain an army, you could never have too much money. But of course Crassus could raise and maintain his own private army, which is what he did when he offered to go deal with these rebellious gladiators. Now, that war went okay, but not great. Much to what would prove to be his everlasting chagrin, Crassus was compelled to call on some help. He sent a couple of messengers out to some of Rome's greatest generals. Most notably was the man who was at this point campaigning up in Hispania, Gnaeus Pompeius. Pompey was Rome's most celebrated living general at this point, but he was also still very young. He was still in his twenties, too young to even legally begin his climb on the Cursus Honorum. But his career was so filled with accolades and victories that he'd been allowed to begin his climb early. Pompey's victories were so impressive, in fact, that his soldiers hailed him Pompey Magnus, Pompey the Great. That was an honor that no Roman before him had ever enjoyed. The only man that the Romans considered to be the great was Alexander. But Pompey's men were now calling him Pompey the Great, and they meant it. When those of senatorial rank back in Rome, when they called Pompey the Great, they did so with a sneer. They were mocking him. He was still just a kid, after all. How could he be great? But... When Pompey's men demanded their general be given a triumph before he was legally allowed to do so, the Senate backed down and said, Hey, you know, why not? Pompey is pretty great. We'll give him a triumph. While he was serving in Spain, Pompey was de facto a praetor. That's the second highest office on the Cursus Honorum, if you don't count the censor, which is kind of outside of the Cursus. But that's right below the consulship, and Pompey was still more than a decade too young to hold that office. But nobody said boo, because, well, he was so good at winning battles. Now, back in Rome, Crassus was Pompey's main rival for power and influence and majesty and all of the honors that a Roman citizen of senatorial rank aspired to achieve. So when Pompey received that message from Crassus begging for his aid... Pompey responded immediately. Pompey readied his men and abandoned Spain to go help out his good friend. They marched back to Italy as fast as the army could move, but it still wasn't quite fast enough. By the time Pompey's army arrived in Italy, Crassus had the war all wrapped up. He defeated the forces of Spartacus in one last, decisive battle. Only 500 men from the army that had been tens of thousands strong, only 500 survived and escaped. And that's nothing, you know, that's a band of brigands. 500 men, you could allow militia officers from whatever provincial town to deal with an issue like that. It's not worthy of a consular army, but Pompey the Great thought they were. His army chased down and fell on those 500 fleeing rebels and crushed them under the weight of what was probably the greatest army in the world. 
Then, Pompey was able to march back toward Rome, not to Rome, but toward Rome, claiming the whole way that it was Pompey who had, once and for all, defeated the rebels. And, you know, yeah, that's technically kind of true, but it's really not what happened. Crassus had done it, but Pompey was taking the credit. But now you've got these two men, Crassus and Pompey, both of them with excellent armies, loyal to their commander, and they're mad at each other. They hate each other, really. And they're both looking to get the top job, the consulship. It was a tense moment. A lot of Romans looked back to the civil war between Marius and Sulla and saw that about to happen again. But instead of a civil war, the two commanders decided to compromise. They both ran for the office of consul in 70 BCE, and they both took pains to ensure that the other man won the other consulship. Remember, there were two consuls at any given time. They weren't friends, not by a long shot, but they had agreed to share the honor and dignity of the consular office. Now these two men, Crassus and Pompey, they were two-thirds of what would later become the first triumvirate. The third member was Julius Caesar, but at this point he's still just a junior senator. During the consulship of Crassus and Pompey, Caesar's up in Spain, this is the part of his biography where he's looking up at that statue of Alexander and realizing that at 30 years old, Alexander had the world at his feet, and Caesar was just beginning his rise. He'd done nothing. It was a spur for the young Julius Caesar. But Caesar's not really going to get around to doing the great things he's going to do until after our episode today is over. So, we don't need to worry about him. But there was another man in Rome who was, at this point, a very big deal, a rising star, someone who could rival even Crassus and Pompey. His name was Cicero. Cicero is a fascinating guy, and despite a few pretty glaring flaws, he's one of the few Romans that I kinda actually like. He's just a a likable person. He's cynical, he's funny, he's a smartass, and we know so much about who he was because we have so many of his personal letters. He's really our main source for all of this today. It's a big part of why this end of the Roman Republic is so well documented, because Cicero was busy documenting it, among a few other very high-profile historians. In fact, it was Cicero whose biography took up the biggest part of the episode today before I revised it. So instead of telling you too much about him, I'll just break it down to this. First of all, he wasn't born a patrician. He was raised to the ranks of the Senate through his own ability and his wealth, and that's a big honor. But he was one of the few men in this generation who would all be elected in his year which means that he was elected at the lowest legally eligible age. That's an even bigger honor, and it means that the people of Rome loved him. They wanted him to hold every office he could as soon as possible. The reason they loved him were two big things. First of all, Cicero began his career as an orator. 
He was a man who gave fantastic speeches that the citizenry enjoyed. Second, though, is that Cicero was a Roman constitutionalist. And this was kind of a rare bird at the end of the Roman Republic. He was arguing for a return to the protections that had once been enjoyed by all Roman citizens. Sulla, who had been dictator just a few years back, had disempowered the office of tribune, and Cicero wanted to re-empower them. He also wanted to make sure that someone like Pompey, who was busy bending the rules, would no longer be allowed to bend the rules. We have to follow the rules set down in our constitution. Now, this was a conservative stance, but all of the senatorial ranks in Rome considered him to be a radical revolutionary. You know, these conservative values, this return to tradition, for which Cicero was arguing, was something that was threatening their entrenched powers and privileges. So much of the Senate considered Cicero a pretty serious threat. But, of course, it made him popular with the people, and that's why he won every election in his year. And honestly, if it wasn't for the fact that Cicero disliked the way that Pompey was bending so many rules, he very likely could have joined in an alliance with them, and later on very nearly did. But of course, that's going to have to wait. Because in 68 BCE, just about a year after Crassus and Pompey leave the office of consul, a fleet of pirates attacked, sacked, and burned the Roman port of Ostia. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Pirates were not a new problem for Rome. They'd been an issue off and on since Rome was founded. But this was different. Ostia was the port city just a few miles from Rome. It wasn't quite actually a suburb, but it wasn't far off. More to the point... Ostia is where all of Rome's grain supply was dropped off. 
Roman grain came almost exclusively from Sicily, Africa, Egypt, and most of all, right now, from Spain. Italy was fertile, of course, but most of her land was tied up in things like olive groves and vineyards. These were luxury goods that the Roman elite wanted for themselves, and in fact, it was seen as a sign of status if you could say that you never had to buy your own wine. But because all of their land was tied up in luxury goods, the grain had to come from outside Italy, and it all entered Italy through Ostia. But those pirates burned the port. They burned the harbor, they burned the fleet, and the granaries. It was a sudden and shocking loss for Rome. Of course, you know, the elite were fine. They had all of those lands growing their olives and their vineyards, which also had cattle that produced meat and cheese and butter. They were okay. But the regular citizenry in Rome itself, as well as many other cities all around Italy, well, they suddenly found themselves distinctly lacking food to eat. All of a sudden, they were going hungry, and hungry people have a way of making their displeasure known. Those usually involved dragging those well-fed elites out of their homes to suffer the worst torments that those hungry people could imagine. It made sense to ensure that they had food to eat, but we have to remember, throughout all of this, the Roman elite were bad people. Self-absorbed, self-obsessed, and most of all, kind of dumb. Blinded by that self-obsession. You know, they knew, on an intellectual level, that letting the people starve would put their own lives at risk. But still, they failed to act. Not because they didn't realize it was a problem. They did. Everybody knew it. But they were nervous about the unintended consequences of those actions. They were nervous about who would be empowered to go deal with the pirates. So, instead of, you know, decisive action, making sure the people got their food, they debated, they deliberated, and for weeks and then months, they failed to do anything. To his credit, Cicero, a novus homo, he tried. He made an argument that would and did speak to his fellow senators. You know, maybe you don't care about starving peasants, but you absolutely should care about the prestige of Rome. Cicero said in an impassioned oration, quote, We used to guarantee not just the safety of Italy, but we were able, through the prestige of our imperial power, to preserve unharmed all our far-flung allies. Yet we are now not only kept out of our provinces, away from the coasts of Italy and its harbors, but we are even driven off the Appian Way. End quote. The Appian Way was the road leading from and through Rome. He's saying that we used to be able to deal with problems all throughout the region, but now we can't even handle Italy. What's wrong with us? It makes us look weak to everybody else out there, so... Get off your butts. The Roman Senate, finally convinced that they could not just rest on their laurels, decided to act decisively, which means that they held longer and more furious debates while still ensuring that basically nothing actually got done. What's happening here is that every time a senator proposes an idea here, this is a way to deal with it, 
somebody else has to say, no, 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 here's why that's bad, because if you let that senator who proposes the idea succeed, then he gets all the credit and the honor and the renown, and the rest of you get nothing. And this happened to everybody. You know, it's a, it's a game of whack-a-mole. Somebody says, hey, I've got an idea, no shot down, but I've got an idea, no shot down. Nothing was getting done. Nothing could get done. But then, the office of Tribune intervened. Now, the Tribunes had for centuries now been the representatives of the people of Rome, the citizens anyway. And there were a number of different types of Tribunes, but the most important, the Tribune of the Plebs, it was an office that could only be held by somebody from the plebeian class, the lower middle classes of Rome. It was an office that had been won by the people of Rome centuries before through strike and bloodshed, and it had been a battleground ever since. Most recently, Sulla had effectively destroyed the tribunate. They still existed. There were ten tribunes in any given year, but they had no power under Sulla. However, when Pompey and Crassus shared their year as consul, they reinstated not all, but a lot of the powers that the tribunate had formerly enjoyed. And now, here in 68 BCE, they were going to exercise those powers. A tribune named Aulus Gabinius proposed a law that would name Pompey the Great the man to deal with the pirates, and in doing so, would make him the most powerful man in Rome. That law was called the Lex Gabiana de Paratis Parasquindis, usually just called the Lex Piratis or the Lex Gabiana, the law of the pirates. The law of the pirates would give Pompey, who was, remember, a beloved national war hero, it would give him proconsular authority all along the coasts of the Mediterranean. And from those coasts, his proconsular authority would extend 50 miles inland. So that's giving him the power of the consulship, while combined with the power of a military governor along the entire stretch of the Mediterranean coast. From the Pillars of Hercules out to the west all the way to the eastern end. That's almost the entirety of the Roman Empire and 50 miles inland, on every coast. It was an astounding amount of power to put into one man's hand, especially since Rome had seen quite recently, in the civil war between Marius and Sulla, just how dangerous that kind of authority could be. It was terrifying. If... Pompey had intended to make himself a king to overthrow the Roman Republic, he would, once this law was passed, be empowered to do so. Should the Senate try to stop him, that would be a tall order. But of course, their other option, you know, what's behind door number two, is being dragged from their beds by peasants and murdered. So, you know, they weren't going to argue too hard. But they did continue to argue. Of course they did. Everything about Roman society said that they had to earn that honor, that glory, that renown. And this was giving all of that, and more, to Pompey, who, remember, was still just a kid and had plenty. 
But then Cicero intervened again. He gave yet another impassioned speech. This is where Cicero employs the most damning language he could muster about the pirates. It's where he, as far as I can tell, first uses the term hostis humani generis. Now, that's not a new term necessarily, but it became something of a rallying call when Cicero uttered those words. It was something that the Roman Senate could agree to fight behind. Sure, he can have these powers as long as he's using them against enemies of all mankind. And that distinction is singularly important. It means that he can't go about enforcing his will in those kingdoms to the east, because those kingdoms are not enemies of all mankind. You know, they're state powers. Pompey's writ would be confined just to those enemies of mankind, just to the pirates. Excellent. So, the Senate's on board, right? We're finally going to get this thing passed. Well, no. They still weren't going to pass it. But this argument by Cicero allowed them to feel like it was okay to let the tribunate pass it without senatorial meddling. It allowed the Senate to keep their hands clean while getting done what they all knew needed to get done. Finally, after weeks of deliberation, Pompey had his army. Pompey had his armies. He had his fleet, and Pompey the Great had his extraordinary command. Now, great generals tend to oftentimes have one particular skill at which they excel some element of generalship that makes them a singularly talented individual. Marius, for example, was great at building fortifications. You know, you'd wake up one morning and all of a sudden there's a Roman fort controlling the river crossing that's super important. Marius did that kind of thing all the time. Julius Caesar, not quite yet, but in a few years, would become known as a general who was amazingly fast. He could move his armies faster than anyone else, and that's a classic, that's a big one. You know, that's how Napoleon won so many of his early battles. That's what makes the horse archer societies like the Huns and the Mongols such excellent forces. Pompey Magnus, though, excelled at controlling the lines of supply. He would locate the important resources in a region, usually something like grain or fresh water, and then he would devote his forces to controlling the supply of one of those necessary resources. He would deny your army access to fresh water, or he would deny your army access to grain, and then all he really had to do was kind of wait you out. He had to not get defeated by you, of course, but as long as he was not defeated in the field, eventually your army would crumble. I mean, let's take a hypothetical here. Say Pompey the Great was fighting, I don't know, Julius Caesar, and say that Pompey the Great had in fact secured the lines of supply and Caesar's army was in fact starving to death. All he would really have to do in that hypothetical situation, that's never really going to happen, all Pompey would have to do is wait. Just not attack Caesar. 
I mean, if he were to do something that stupid, like attack Julius Caesar, he might just lose, and lose all his advantage, and not use the one thing that he was best at to win that war. Good thing Pompey's never going to be that stupid. If you don't get my sarcastic tone of voice, Pompey's going to lose a civil war against Julius Caesar in about 20 years, and that's how it's going to happen. For now, though, Pompey's still at the top of his game. And Pompey began the campaign against the pirates by controlling the lines of supply. First, it was about the grain back to Rome. He needed to secure that food and do so quickly. And reportedly, he did so in 40 days, which is amazingly fast. First things first, he put a man in charge of rebuilding and then fortifying Ostia. Then he sent a legate up to Spain. A legate was kind of a general put in charge of a province. In this case, he was a proconsular legate. Or a legatus pro praetore, meaning that he was appointed by Pompey, not the consuls or the senate. The legate that he sent up to Spain had a few legions, a few ships, and a dictate to guard the Spanish grain ports. Then Pompey headed down south to the island of Sicily, where he left another legate, with another couple of legions and another few ships. Then they stopped off on the coast of North Africa, where they dropped off a few more legates in important positions, as well as legions, as well as ships. You get the idea. What he's doing here was bigger than just securing the grain, though. In a very real way, Pompey was establishing the Roman Empire. You know, Cicero had said that we used to be able to project strength through our imperial power. But that really wasn't how Rome had done business up until now. They had relied mostly on their allies, who all recognized that Rome was the leader. But now, Pompey was taking a much more direct hand. These legions that he was leaving in strategic ports on Sicily, in Spain, in Africa, those legions were never going to leave. You know, individual soldiers would, sure, they'll go home. The men leading them would be cycled in and out back to Rome. But that power structure, the Roman legionary power structure, the Roman military who would build a fort there, well, that was going to last for centuries. You know, those legions that he left in Africa would never really leave until the Vandals march in about 500 years later. He was erasing even the fiction that they were allied sister states. No, at this point, these were just provinces of Rome, and part of what was very quickly becoming a Roman Empire. But after those 40 days were up and the grain supply was secured, Pompey set sail to deal with the pirates. Now, I would love to tell you all about the epic struggle against the pirates, but I really can't. There really wasn't much of a struggle to speak of. And if Pompey had had the head for propaganda that Julius Caesar would prove to have when he was campaigning up in Gaul, then we might have one of the best stories ever told. Caesar gave us a dramatic, day-by-day -day account of his wars in Gaul. If Pompey had done the same, he might have been even more of a national hero. But he didn't. Instead, we have to rely on sources like Cicero. 
And when it comes to Pompey's campaign against the pirates, this is what he has to say, quote, He set out for Brundisium, and in 49 days had brought Cilicia into the Roman Empire. End quote. That's it. And I think partly it's because he didn't know a lot more than that. Pompey wasn't sharing those details. But 49 days is quick. That's nothing for a military campaign. And it suggests that there really wasn't much resistance to Pompey's cleaning up the shores of the Mediterranean. And there really could have been. Pompey had like 40 or 50 ships at this point. Triremes, excellent ships, but not a gigantic fleet. On the other hand, the Cilician pirates, well, they had hundreds of ships. We're really not sure how many, but it was a lot. This could have turned into a long, protracted guerrilla warfare on the ocean, and, you know, I'd love that. And it's a shame that nobody wrote down much about this mission or the Cilician pirates in general. The pirates themselves sure weren't keeping records, and really all we've got to go on is some archaeological data. That's why we know, for example, that they were members of that cult of Mithra. We can make some assumptions about their way of life, that they shared out their plunder equally, for example. That's an ancient Mediterranean tradition that would be passed on through the centuries, but we don't really have any hard evidence that's how they did things. We can't even really say that they were honestly enemies of all mankind. Men without a state. There's quite a bit of debate even today about the way the Cilician pirates were organized. You know, Cicero may have been employing some of his famous rhetoric in calling them enemies of all mankind. It's the same rhetoric he used in his first really big, high-profile court case that made him famous throughout Rome. It's the same kind of rhetoric he would go on to use against Julius Caesar and even later, Augustus. We can't say that Cicero definitely means, you know, they're really pirates, guys, because there is some talk of a queen. There's a port city in modern Turkey called Alanya. It's, from what I can tell, beautiful down there, and it's been an important strategic naval port for ever. It's on a small peninsula, but has this amazing natural harbor and is very defensible from all sides. Most of the historic sites that you'll find there today date from the Seljuk Turks or the Ottoman Empire, and most of those sites were built on top of Roman and Byzantine ruins. And that name, Alanya, that comes from the Arabic, after the Turks invaded. And that name, Alanya, that comes from the Arabic, after Muslim forces overran that region. The Romans called that port city Corixium. And in 67 BCE, Corixium was ruled by a petty queen whose name has been lost, as far as I can tell, and who may or may not have really been in charge of the pirates. The general consensus seems to be that she was not a pirate queen leading these forces from the shore, but rather she was a queen of the land who tolerated these pirates. You know, she could try to get rid of them, which would be dangerous, or she could allow them to pay her tribute and use her port, which would offer its own kind of protection protection against the Greeks or the Egyptians or anybody who might claim her excellent little port. 
So, you know, not a pirate queen exactly, but maybe a queen of pirates. Pompey the Great, though, was something different. Something new. His navy washed over the pirates of the coast of Cilicia in a wave. One by one, their little pirate enclaves, their little outposts and hidden harbors, they all fell to the Roman fleet. But they weren't conquered exactly. You know, Pompey wasn't burning and massacring. He didn't have to. As soon as he showed up, the pirates just kind of surrendered. Because what else are you going to do? Oh, hey, look, 50 ships, the most highly advanced ships in the Mediterranean, filled with the best soldiers in the world. What do you think we should do, guys? Fight them? Of course not. They surrendered to Pompey. And that's an important distinction. They weren't exactly surrendering to Rome. They were surrendering to Pompey. Pompey Magnus. Pompey the Great. This is an important element of Roman society, what they call the patron-client relationship. Every senator in Rome was a patron to dozens or hundreds of clients, men who owed him their allegiance and would vote along the lines that that senator wanted him to vote. Those citizens, clients of the senator, would get jobs and money and other sorts of social perks. And even some of the senators had higher-ranking senators who were their own patrons within the Senate. And Pompey was acting in accordance with that traditional Roman way of doing things, but instead of, you know, getting a cobbler who was going to vote your way in the forum, he's getting pirate captains with hundreds of men under their command, all of them owing allegiance to their new patron, Pompey the Great. This is after establishing 13 different districts within the Roman Empire where his personal legates, his personal generals, were in command, running things now. Pompey had done exactly what he was empowered to do. He'd put people in power all around the Mediterranean that were loyal to him, and, of course, to Rome after that. And now he had the largest fleet in the Mediterranean, the fleet of the pirates, at his command. Well, still not the largest. The second largest. The largest fleet did not belong to Athens or to Rome. It belonged to the pirates who had yet to surrender. Pirates who were currently gathering in that port of Caracium, under that unnamed queen. The campaign against the pirates reached a climax when Pompey's fleet arrived at Coracium. The queen had her fleet of pirates there, ready to meet the Roman invaders. Plutarch tells us that she had a thousand ships in her fleet, which is crazy and not true, but I'm sure she had a lot, nonetheless. As many as would fit in the relatively small harbor. They would have been arrayed kind of equidistant from each other, prepared to shoot volleys of arrows at anyone who might invade. Now, ancient naval warfare in the Mediterranean is not delicate or complex. It's nothing like the dance of wind and waves that early modern navies underwent when they were fighting each other, trying to gain advantage. No, ancient Mediterranean naval warfare was blunt, and brutal. You could use fire, absolutely, 
and the defenders were using fire in this case, but you would only do so if you intended to destroy the fleet that you were fighting. The more common tactic was to use the ram. All of the ships in this battle, all of the ships in this battle were equipped with a ram on the front, a large piece of carved wood that was covered in copper, or bronze usually. Now, the Roman fleet had abandoned their sails, they'd left them back on land, as well as nearly everything that was in the cargo holds. They wanted to make the ships as light as possible. But then, of course, they filled them back up with men. And those men who were working the oars were probably not enslaved people. They, you know, galley slaves were a real thing, but here in this army it was more likely soldiers. Once they reached their destination, they would have to fight, but for now they worked the oars, and they worked them hard. As the Roman fleet approached the harbor entrance, they would have had a drummer who was beating in an ever-increasing tempo, so the oarsmen would row faster, 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 faster. And they did, it was hard work, but those ships were moving at an amazing pace when they entered the harbor. And then... They ran into the pirate fleet. Their rams punctured the hulls of the first line of defenders, letting all of the water flow into the hole. A hail of arrows would have flown from the Romans to the defenders, followed quickly by Roman soldiers. Now, these soldiers would not have been legionaries, as you might picture them, dressed in full armor. That would have been way too heavy. They would have been dressed in light leather armor, carrying a spear, a shield, and a gladius. And as soon as they jumped that railing, fighting would have broken out a bloody, bloody melee. Within minutes, hundreds would have been dead here in the harbor, and as the battle dragged on, thousands would have been dead and injured. And it would have been a long, slogging fight. Once those Romans in the first line took that first ship, they held it against the opposing forces, those defending the harbor, while Romans from other ships further back moved up the line and took the next line of ships, doing so over gangplanks, swinging over on ropes, that kind of thing. It was slow, and then suddenly bloody, brutal, hard, deadly, and then slow. It was a slog. But soon enough, the Cilician fleet capitulated. They knew they couldn't win against their Roman opponent. The queen, whoever she was, surrendered. It's unclear whether or not she personally pledged allegiance to Pompey. I don't think she did. I think it's more likely she committed suicide, because after this battle, there's no talk of any leadership outside of the Roman officials in the region. And with that final battle, Pompey the Great had defeated the pirate menace in the Mediterranean. But of course, Pompey was only getting started. This was the first step in his conquest and reorganization of the East. And in a very real sense, what he's doing here is establishing what would become the Eastern Roman Empire. Within a couple of years, every king in the region will have either been defeated or pledged personal allegiance to Pompey the Great. It's an amazing achievement what he did, but it was also very destabilizing to the power structure back in Rome. It was 
so destabilizing that the Senate almost prosecuted Pompey for what he had done. That's why he had to form uh, an alliance, a coalition with Crassus and Julius Caesar, called the First Triumvirate. A coalition that would eventually, a few twists and turns down the road, destroy the Roman Republic. Honestly, it's one of the great stories ever told. But there aren't many pirates in that story. You know, there are always going to be pirates in the Mediterranean, but once the Roman Empire proper, the Principate, led by Augustus Caesar, once that gets going and really takes control of the Mediterranean, there just aren't many pirates to deal with. And when they were found, they were handled quickly and harshly. So, for about the next 500 years, piracy, in the Mediterranean at least, was a non-issue. Next time, we're going to be returning to the early modern era, a period when piracy was among the greatest issues in the world. Really, the only question that eclipsed that of the pirates was the question of the Spanish succession. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews or just recommended the show, you all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, I've got one that's pretty on topic here. Ancient History Fangirl. It's a fantastic podcast about ancient history, much of the stuff we've been talking about here today, in much more detail. You can find them at airwavemedia.com. Once again, remember to go on over to surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave to take that brief survey. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you've yet to check them out, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.